0: You are listening to Yoga Concepts as expressed by Tiger King's Bhagawan Doc Antle, the final project podcast for yoga then and now. So I'm Kieran Conway.
1: I'm Sudhan Basi.
0: All right, so for this podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about Bhagawan Doc Antle from um, documentary series Tiger King. So we're going to look at... Um, how he's talked about in the documentary, but also how he's talked about outside of the documentary, and uh, what his life has been like, and how he uses yoga to do the things that he does, which we'll explain further in the podcast. So, so the first question that we to no. answer is, you know, uh, what is modern yoga in a Western context?
1: That is a really interesting question, um, you know, because. As based on the readings, I think it was in the 19th century, um, that yoga kind of, it was usually known as meditation and, you know, sitting in a yogic pose and, uh, sitting in a calm and empty place and, um, uh, meditating. But, uh, during that time, they kind of deconstructed it and reconstructed it to use posture and that kind of gave the birth of, uh modern yoga um in and beyond south asia
0: Um. yeah definitely and i think too um andrea jane has a really good quote from uh from her book selling yoga from counterculture to pop culture Mm -hmm. which says that it's basically made up of heterogeneous systems that developed as a consequence again like not only uh, from indian yoga reformers but also from a lot of westerners uh specifically europeans and americans that were interested in topics raising, ranging from metaphysics to fitness um, and modern sociopolitical phenomena. So I definitely think that um, that what, what you said, Sidon, is definitely like what modern yoga is. And I think also that Andrew has a good point that it's it developed not only, uh, modern yoga in the West developed not only from the Indian reformers, but they definitely were like the first people to bring it to the West. And then you have all of these Westerners kind of piling on their own ideas and using uh, the context of the culture at the time and, you know, what they've read. Uh, so it's definitely a multicultural uh, experience right. practice, Absolutely. practice, um, which is very interesting. I feel like the West is made up of a lot of, a lot of cultural institutions in the West are just kind of like, you know, uh, like borrowed from other cultures and just reintegrated in a way that, you know, is, is relatable uh, to Western audiences in one way or
1: another. Um You know, I completely agree with you, Sarah. You know, that was so interesting what you said there, that yoga also stemmed from Westerners. Because most people think that yoga is Hindu, because yoga stems from the Vedas. But actually, three major religions do come from that; those texts which describe yoga. Mm-hmm. Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. And we kind of, our entire class, you know, focuses on trying to determine whether yoga is Hindu or mm-hmm. not yoga was kind of practiced. what I was able to gather from the readings and everything around me. Yoga was practiced even in Europe and in the U S before India or Indians came to advertise it like at the Chicago conference. Mm -hmm. um, It was already being practiced. No one had a term for it. They used to like it, but there was no specific term as such for it. We kind of came up with the term and kind of, um, you know advertised it much better um also since there were major population of indians practicing it uh, we kind of started associating yoga with hinduism though that is there's a very fine line over there and that kind of people blur it over um so so i think what you raised over there was a great point
0: yeah, thank you. And I think even the reading that we had to do for today uh, t- touched on yoga phobia, uh, well, two movements specifically, the yoga phobia movement, which is fueled by Christian fundamentalists, and then also the Hindu origins movement, which is fueled by Hindus who feel that uh, yoga is essentially Hindu, and therefore it is a religious experience. So there are, still, there are definitely people who think that it's, it is an essentialist kind of point of view, and both, both Christians, Hindus, and I'm sure people of other religions, too, but, yeah, from what we've learned from this class, uh, yoga is a conversation um, of many different religions in South South Asia, um, even as far as China, because I know that Zen Buddhism also, which has elements from both Buddhism and Taoism also, uh, there's there are some yoga practices that are uh, centered around that. So it's a very, so even before it got to the West, it was already a very multicultural, a very culturally rich um, practice. And then it came to the west and it was even further disseminated and you know rearranged so yeah so if there's one thing that this class has taught is that yoga is definitely not
1: a modulous yeah. body of practice
0: and i find that really fascinating
1: absolutely absolutely
0: yeah and um So our next question will be, uh, who exactly is Doc Antle? So I know we both found a lot of stuff about him. So um, I will let you go first with what you found about Doc Antle and what would you think about it?
1: Oh, thank you so much, Sierra. Um, what I was able to gather was that his actual name was Kevin Antley and um, he family, an industrial farm. <laughs> and most importantly was that his father was a boxer who mastered in martial arts, Um, his mother actually gave him the name Bhagwan, um, which stands for God, actually. Um, And during his early childhood, he said that he wanted to blend in and be something between Rambo (laughs) and the Dalai Lama. That's what he wanted to be when he grew up, which was really interesting. Um, I think later on when we discuss more about him, we can kind of probably pull a few points that he does somewhat come close, but <laughs> probably not. Um, yeah. The, if the funny part was, uh, the, his name is also called Doc Ante. The doc stands for doctor over there. And he actually gained that. He dropped out of school mm-hmm. in ninth grade and went to China where he pursued a degree in basic doctorism. And that's why he keeps telling people to address himself as doc Aunte or doc mm-hmm. magwan Aunte, um and only after that when he returned back to the u.s and he came to the ashram in virginia that was when he you know entered in a big way into yoga which we will discuss further on
0: um, yeah yeah so that yeah it's really interesting because uh, in a documentary they ask what bhagavan means and like no one really knows and even Bhagavan says friend of God which still isn't quite accurate um so yeah so there's that um so I think it's really interesting again and we'll talk more about it later but how he appropriates certain aspects of Indian culture having absolutely no idea and no cultural context for what these things mean um so yeah so so after he <laughs> after he practiced medicine he came back to the US and I know at some point in his in his young life in the 80s I believe he went to the Yogaville Ashram which was uh headed by Satchidananda who's a, a swami and he uh he so he founded the Yogaville Ashram and he even actually participated in the organization of Woodstock apparently he was a huge player in organizing that and getting it together and so, and he even apparently blessed Woodstock by pouring like water out of a out of a helicopter. Or so, yeah, he was a big thing, and especially for the countercultural uh, movement. I mean, he was he was definitely a huge influence in that. So, so we studied at the ashram. He, um, so I read a Rolling Stone article uh, from 2015 called "The Man Who Made Animal Friends." by Ian S. Port, and he says that, So Bhagavan Doc Antle is the owner of Tigers, or the Institute for Greatly Endangered Rare Species. The private park runs tours of its impressive collection of exotic animals to families and groups containing children over six years of age, and it's called Myrtle Beach Safari. And to directly quote the article, uh, the tours offered three times a week during the summer cost $339 per person. <laughs> Professional photos with animal cubs start at $150 and personal photos and video are prohi- are prohibited. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of crit- critics of, ba- of Bhagavan because Bhagavan says that he is trying to, you know, he, he says that his park is all about conservation. And yet he's charging these astronomical fees for, you know, people to see the tigers up close. So. So yeah, but, but to his credit, um, okay. I did watch the Rolling Stone video and they showed one of the tours and how they actually have like 50 different mission projects around the world um, helping conservation. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that some of those high prices are going overseas to those missions. Um, but, you know, who, who knows where it's really going? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so <laughs> apparently, yeah, so he has these 50 conservation projects. But then at the same time, from what we know mm-hmm. from the documentary, he does not pay his workers very well. So, again, there's, there's a little bit of, uh, of discrepancy in where the money's going and how he's using it. Um, so, yeah, so Doc Antle became famous, of course, when he was featured, and his park became famous, when he's featured in the sensational Netflix documentary limited series Tiger King, which threw him in with a cast of equally quirky private animal park owners who also claim to be exotic animal lovers, much like Doc, but each of them has their own personal flavor um so Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's that's pretty much
1: i think it's very important that you um (laughs) sorry yes um yeah i think that's very important what you touched upon where the money does go because what i did read was he pays his employees 100 dollars for 12 hours of working days yeah to take the basic wage in california it doesn't it's not even close to how much they should be earning, especially when they work with such dangerous species. Oh, yes. Um, and and, and uh, furthermore, the, 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 the uh, price that he charges $150 for taking photos close to the animals, that actually is an illegal policy, okay. which I read on that Rolling Stone article mm-hmm. right below. So it was interesting how he even charges that and how he goes about conducting his work um in fact uh I think it was in the year two thousand seven or nine uh, where I was reading in um, an article by C. will where it is said that um he was fined three thousand five hundred dollars because he did not construct enough fences and he was not keeping safe distance between the people come to visit the animals um and his 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 statement was that he never understood the rules. And he said tigers are extremely safe animals <laughs> and did never do anything to harm anyone. Oh, which oh, yeah, it it's it's kind of surprising. But um yeah, that that that's kind of his philosophy. Um and and the interesting part is that um another thing, it was just a fact which I found. Um the the uh, institute which he runs, it goes by the acronym Tigers. Mm-hmm. And the full form of that is the Institute of Greatly Endangered and Rare Species. And the only endangered and rare species he keeps there are the tigers. <laughs> um, you know, there is hardly any animal except probably dogs and just a two, three peacocks what I was able to find online. So yeah. it was interesting yeah. that... Um, yeah he he says he donates a lot of money and all but
0: yeah and i know he does have like an orangutan or two which i think are considered endangered but like the way that he interacts with them is very much not in a conservation kind of way he's very hands-on he practically raised them so and you can say that for all of his you know endangered whether they're endangered or not you can say that for all of his animals is he says that he's about conservation and yet he's very much into humans interacting with them which is very anti-conservation uh, efforts and if he were really a conservation activist he'd be trying to breed them to get them in the wild but obviously he's much more concerned with having them be his you know proverbial cash cows so right,
1: right. yeah and also and you so- oh i'm sorry mm-hmm oh no you can go ahead oh sorry
0: and not and not to mention too with tigers i find it really interesting because tigers are a predatory cat that is uh, from the subcontinent of india and so him being this person who tends to appropriate indian culture i think these big cats for a lot of the personalities on the documentary it's like a statement of power uh and especially of masculine power um but for for bhagavan it's also this you know this claimed it's like his own he's trying to claim a piece of Indian culture and also integrate it into his you know masculine kind of uh, appearance and like you know his like masculine reputation. So I think it's really interesting in that way because again, like if you surround yourself with big animals, people think, "Wow, you know you're a powerful dude, but also they're from India, and so I think he's really reinforcing that idea that you know he somehow has a claim to to Indian culture.
1: That is so so interesting. Um, which which you know most Indians would um, not agree with, um, especially with the way he kind of goes about living his mm-hmm. life. It kind of does uh, have a kind of split culture in it, um, and 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 the name that he got from his mom was only because the mother was interested in Eastern philosophy, yeah. as uh, reported on the Rolling Stone article. Um, so so that was really interesting um what's more interesting is when you said uh, touched upon the term that the tigers are more like cash cows um though he says he's a very disciplined man and he follows you know yoga and does all the necessary stuff and the important thing is are employees which he does keep um the, the he only employs extremely young women mm-hmm. um and kind of you gives them beauty treatments um, as recorded in the article, the cinema holic, um, and he tries to make them look extremely attractive, to to get more people to visit his institute so that he can earn more money. Uh, so I just felt that it was extremely disheartening when we saw that in the documentary, and when we read in the ad- several mm-hmm. articles. In fact, one of the employees who used to work there uh, described Auntley as using touch or physical touch, physical sexual abuse with these women, he used to describe it as Shaktipat, a divine touch, um, which we can which we will address a bit later on. But it, you know he used to use that to kind of form a deep bond with the women. And because of this deep bond, none of the women were ever able to leave the institute. They felt they looked upon him as 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 you know the supreme being of all. Um, what's more important in that is the only women that he did get to his institute were Mm -hmm. virgins so he was claimed to be the first man to have done anything and it it kind of stems as we'll discuss later on um, how he kind of uses Hatha Yoga uh, in this and and his teachings from the uh, Swami um, uh, Swami Satchitananda and uh, yes, I think you touched upon some great points over
0: there. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. I think without further ado, we will move on to our next question, which is uh, what does Doc have to do with modern yoga? <laughs> For a quick recap, uh, the question that we're answering now is what does Doc Antle have to do with modern yoga? So I would like to open, of course, with your thoughts on what Doc Antle and modern yoga have to do with each other and how uh, Doc Antle incorporates yoga into his eccentric, for you know, lack of a better word, lifestyle.
1: Perfect. Uh, so uh, Doc Antle came to yoga well in the earliest days of the ashram over there. I- People say it's around 1982 on Sea Will. Um, and when he reached there, it, it was a meditation complex which was founded in the early 80s by Swami Sachidananda. Uh, now, Swa- Swami Sachidananda was a celebrity yoga who delivered the opening blessing in Woodstock in the year 1969. It's basically a spot that draws people from around the world to uh, practice in a placid wilderness. Where you know residents eat vegetarian food, meditate multi, multiple times per day, and even pay cheap rent. many people over there adopt Sanskrit first names, however Dahante's name was already adopted by his mother due to a variety of these reasons and him having gone to China to study uh you know basic doctrine um he felt right at home over there uh it, it was interesting, the yoga, which he studied over there, it is called integral yoga, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be a flexible combination of specific methods to develop every aspect of the individual, be it physical, intellectual, and spiritual. Um, it's a scientific system which is set to incorporate the various branches of yoga to bring about a complete and harmonious development of the entire person. Um, I know you mentioned a bit about the different branches you just want to touch upon that.
0: Yeah, so so the branches of integral yoga are hatha yoga um which focuses on the physical aspects through asanas uh, sorry asanas and also pranayama which is breath control. So you have again like the physical postures and the breath. Uh raja yoga has to do with the balancing of the mind through ethical practices uh such as concentration and meditation. Uh, Bhakti yoga is the path to devotion by constant love, thought, and service of the divine. Um, it's pract- It can be practiced by anyone, and all that is needed is faith and constant remembrance of God. So it's very much devotional and thinking about a higher power. Um, so karma yoga has to do with pat- a path of action and selfless service, which means serving without attachment to the fruits of one's labor, because that is believed that if you are attached to the fruits of your labor, that you will accumulate karma and it will be harder for you to achieve a better life in the next life. So, and also we have Janana yoga, which has to do with um, the pursuit of knowledge. Um, it's called the knowledge of what really exists. That is what is not changeable. One who engages in the path of wisdom realizes oneness with the entire universe. So again, it's very much focusing. It's it's kind of like focusing on higher, higher truth. And then you have Japa mm-hmm. yoga, which is repetition of a mantra, a sound structure of one or more syllables which represents a particular aspect of the divine vibration. So those are the six branches. And in a way, it kind of reminds me, uh, I know before the break, I can't uh, pinpoint the reading because it was very early in the class, but we talked about the eight limbs of yoga. Um, it mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of this system. I mean, again, it's not exact, um, but it does have very similar elements. And some of them are even the same elements of, of the, the limbic system um, of yoga. So it definitely draws its roots from, from that. Um, And I think it's interesting, too, because you see a lot of yoga practitioners doing either hatha yoga or raja yoga or jnana yoga or bhakti. So this is, again, the integral yoga is a very it's it's a well-rounded kind of program. And again, it very it's it's very multi like multifaceted, which I think is interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's it's the only program that I know uh, that has but like a lot of different yoga systems combined into one. So I think that's very interesting. And I also think what's interesting is that Yogaville actually has its own monastic order. So I know in this class, we talked about how people uh, view, some people view yoga as spiritual and others view it as religious. So Yogaville kind of does a bit of both. It definitely has practi- uh, classes for practice of spiritual yoga. But then they, again, the the fact that they have a monastic order suggests that there is a religious um there are religious undertones, and again, it's not really clear I, I kind of wonder myself which you know which side Doc is on you know whether it's spiritual or religious, but um I think in a way in a way, he kind of sees himself as like the center, so it's kind of hard to say it's like a spiritual thing or a religious thing for him, but um it's definitely something uh there's definitely something to that. So, so, yes. Yeah. So, his study under Suchidananda, I wish there was more information on it. I know um, one of the articles that we looked at had pictures of Suchidananda with uh, one of Doc's or two of Doc's tigers, and even one with his lion. And a lot of people said, oh, like, you know, that it shows that Suchidananda was a lover of nature and that nature also loves him back because, you know, you see him with these tigers not attacking him, and people think, oh, like, you know, obviously, you know, there's a natural. but then there's also really not because doc's tigers were you know they were hand raised by doc so they're not really like wild they're kind of in this liminal space where they definitely act like wild animals but then there are also elements of them that are very domestic and they definitely can't survive on their own in like i don't know where is he like tampa florida or somewhere of america of america and so they definitely can't survive there on their own so it's very kind of interesting, like, again, there's no black and white with the tigers, because the tigers are wild animals, but they're also in this domestic space. So I feel like, you know, in in a similar way, uh, there's no black and white element to to Doc's version of yoga, because uh, he, again, I mean, Yogaville, you know, has a very uh, integrated and rich system of yoga. And so I think that also Doc kind of took an influence from that, because his versions of what he says about yoga is very, like, in the gray area. And I kind of wonder if that has to do with the complexity of integral yoga. Obviously it's not the same thing. You know, he has his own about what integral yoga means that probably don't line up with what the practitioners at yoga go believe. But um, yeah, so he definitely has uh, his own complex views on that. And um, what I also think is interesting is how, uh, how yoga is used as a lure to these young teens that we talked about earlier uh, to get them into, you know, his his Myrtle Beach Safari or, or Tigers program. And how he, uh, so again, so uh, Barbara Fisher, who was the woman on Tiger King, uh, she said that she was 19 when she, jo- or sorry, 17 when she joined in 1999. And she was there from 1999 to 2007. And she said that the promise of yoga, vegetarianism and animals to her in, but especially the yoga, because she was really about that at that time which makes sense because also the 1990s was kind of the new age era. And so there were a lot of young people that were getting into practices such as yoga. Um, and she says mm-hmm. that, and again, this kind of reminds me of of, of Bikram, uh, Bikram yoga, who, you know, was also, you know, this guy who claimed he was a yogi, but he did a lot of things that a yogi shouldn't do. Um, so she says that Doc says, yeah. You're a good, you're a garbage person, but if you listen to me, I'm gonna make you great. And that was in episode two of Tiger King. So that is very much a cult mentality, and Bickram did much the same thing, good. except he was, of course, much more overt about it. I mean, it seems like Doc only said that to his employees, where Bickram, you know, went on TV saying stuff like that. So I think Doc is definitely sneakier in how he builds his cult persona, but um, it's definitely there because one of the big. One of the initiation rites of of most cults is to break you down and then build you up in the in the identity of the cult so it's very much like you know telling you that you're nothing until you join me and you listen to me and i will make you this person that you want to be and you can't do it alone so it's very much you know making these these uh you know teenage girls dependent on him and again you talked about how a lot of them were virgins and so Again, that's another aspect of life that is very impressionable because if you don't have that kind of experience and, you know, there's this older man who's telling you that, you know, he can do these things for you. I mean, it's, it's very likely that you would think, oh yeah, like, you know, you know, um, you know, you Shaktipa and um, that's, you know, that's how Shaktipa works because you just, you don't know. Um, so he definitely takes advantage of your innocence in that way. And I say a lot of folks do that. And again, I keep bringing up Bikram. room. Also, he brought a lot of people in who mm-hmm. were very, in it. maybe not, they weren't virgins, but they were very innocent in other ways um, and did, they didn't know about, right. Right. Uh, a lot of aspects of yoga. And so, yeah, I definitely see similarities there with these these people.
1: Very interesting points that you brought up. You know, uh, one of the similar characteristics between Bikram and um, Doc Ante was both of them studying mm-hmm. yoga uh, from Swami's. And they fine-tuned to yoga to suit their own personal selves. And they thought that was the way that would, you know, uh, bring positive effects to the world. Though, in many ways, it actually yeah. never did. Sad. Um, they it, it was very sad and unfortunate that it happened this way. And it still somewhat does continue in today's world. Um, Like you said, Doc Ant is very sneaky in his ways, so he doesn't get caught. Um... And he, you know, sneakily tries to make sure that he doesn't break any Mm. rules. But somewhat I can see him following along the path of uh, Bikram and uh, using yoga to a negative aspect. Both of them did use quite a bit of Hatha Mm. yoga, uh, which we did speak about in the early days uh, of modern yoga was kind of being practiced by a group of people but wasn't really appreciated mm-hmm. by the society, though there were those highly, um, uh, you know, the celebrities and great big professionals, the elders mm-hmm. who did practice it through back doors and back channels, which we did read in some of the readings, um, counterculture to pop mm-hmm. culture after spring break. So it, it, it was very interesting how, how the society, uh, you know in the front might be like this but behind closed doors there might be something mm-hmm. else Um, i was reading this article which states that um doc ante is actually if you look at it from a i wouldn't say a positive perspective but he is the one person uh he himself quotes himself as saying that he's the person who's able to do what society is afraid to bring yeah. out is afraid to show but they do do so behind closed doors. And he just da- does that more openly. And like you said, he believes that he's giving proper life to these young workers, young women who come to work in his organization. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. And, and he also says that he was portrayed wrongly in the Netflix documentary, which is kind of interesting um, that he believes so, especially uh, after gaining his teachings from Swami Sachidananda. What's also very interesting was uh, though we see Doc Ante kind of sexually abusing his employees, Swami Sachidananda was also accused of sexual assault allegations on a bit after mm-hmm. Doc Ante joined his ashram in the US. He was never prosecuted for it, but it was kind of interesting how people who do tend to practice, you know, integral yoga, or I would go as far to say hatha yoga Mm -hmm. can some are often associated with sexual misconducts. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see that though I know hatha yoga does deal with that and it does want to increase the a sense of happiness and pleasure that comes from it and uses those techniques to do so, what we were able to gather from the readings in class. It's it's interesting that this is how people personify it and see it and use it to move forward. And um, people believe in it more often than we think they should not. People do actually believe in such sort of stuff. So,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. We- was.
1: A, mm, i'm
0: sorry go ahead i
1: no I, I i was just thinking that it was very interesting um, how it was done in fact swami sachidananda was uh, uh, and played a key role in imparting yoga to the western world uh, he wrote tons and tons of books of yoga in english which was for the first time in history uh, having done so and so he kind of paved the way for a modern Western audience mm-hmm. and the vigorous practices of yoga around the world. Um, it's it's interesting that he does so because, like you said, most of the Swamis uh, are only interested in teaching one particular type of yoga. But as you said, due to him teaching so many different types of yoga, uh, Doc Docante probably because of that, kind of uses it and works on it in the gray area. Um which which makes now a lot of sense after studying this i wish like you said there was a bit more info as to how you did uh, practice it or come upon it but i think through subtle hints and seeing the documentary and art reading articles and through our class readings we can kind of establish a bit of that ourselves
0: yeah and to go off your point about you know his version of yoga he also I would say, again, through looking at the documentary um, and other sources, but especially the documentary in this case, he definitely thinks of himself as a guru. And I think the Shaktipa is like his, again, it's not real Shaktipa, uh, just to be clear, but he uses, that's kind of his guru. That's kind of his tool that he uses as, you know, as his version of a guru. And I think, because we did do a reading on gurus, and I think that one important quote from it, and it was by Hannah H. Kim, um, and it talked about um, Bhakti Yoga and the Aks- Aksara Brahman Guru. Um, so it was talking about a specific sect of yoga, but I think that it does apply to a lot of what we know about gurus in um, in yoga practice. And it says that the guru is the central link between devotees and their devotional goal to be liberated from rebirth and to eternally serve God. So I think I think Doc Ansel definitely saw himself as that kind of link. In that, you know, again, telling his These women that are, you know, these teenage girls, that they were dependent on him is kind of his way of saying, You're dependent on me for liberation. Um, You know. So he saw himself, and again, he called him, he thought that his name meant a friend of God, which definitely, I think, uh, serves that purpose of, again, like, you know, here, I'm a friend of God. I'll help you serve this God. And I don't really know what the God was for him or what, you know, universal energy or what, but he definitely thought of himself as a way to enlighten and to bring these these women and girls to his level um, in his in his mind um, so yeah that's that's what he did
1: yeah it's I, I love the quote that you picked up from the reading uh, because in some ways I feel uh, not only Doc Ante but Bikram himself both of them were kind of uh, in the early stages of their life kind of confused as to what to do ahead kind of uh, um, you know uh, um, crippled I'd say in in some ways as to what the future would hold for them but once they came to the ashrams once they practiced these different yoga techniques it kind of formed a step-by-step stage for their life even though it wasn't exactly in the positive limelight but it kind of gave them hope and inspiration as to what to do next and I feel they kind of use that as an excuse to do what they do today they feel they are responsible for people Mm -hmm. and they themselves feel that you know what we say is the final stand we know what's going to become of your life and um, this is what you do have to do Um, so so it's interesting that you uh, brought this quote because I see that being used by them in a very literal way as well Mm -hmm. Um, yeah um, yeah so
0: yeah, and you see it a lot in American pop culture. You see these people who, and it, I think it does actually say more about our society than it does about the people. But you see these people come and they tell you, "I know the way." You know, um, to paraphrase what you know, Jesus is like, "I'm the way, the truth, the life." Uh, these people take it to a whole new level, um, and they basically will amass these these followers who are, you know, I guess they I guess they feel that they're they themselves are wayward souls and that they need some kind of direction, some kind of guidance, and I kind of wonder if that has to do with kind of like, I feel like there's a lot of spiritual displacement in American society right now, and what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, Christianity in America um, used to be, you know, the dominant religion, of course there were other religions, but Christianity was the dominant one, I mean, you know, everyone had like a Christmas tree, uh, even if they weren't really that religious, you know, it's just kind of like the dominant social regime, um, and then, so nowadays, uh, Christianity isn't quite as popular as it once was, um, and you see different kinds of reactions to that. And in the reading for yesterday, uh, talked about the yoga phobia movement, which again was headed by fundamentalist Christians who felt that yoga was essentially Hindu and was a threat um, to to the Christian nation, as they put it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, again, so there's this kind of disenfranch- disenfranchisement with with um, with a specifically with Christian religion. And so I feel like there are a lot of people who are looking for something to fill that void. Um, And so I think that's, you know, and especially with with our generation and, you know, whether you consider yourself a Gen Z or millennial, I think, you know, that age group definitely feels like, you know, there must be something more. And so I think that's where these people, these uh, figureheads get a lot of their fuel from is people who are looking for something more. And, you know, they tell them, hey, I have the answer. I have it for you right here. And that's, you know, they're, they're looking for, I think a lot of people are looking for a clear-cut answer as to what to do in life. And, you know, it's a very convenient, easy way of, of getting it.
1: Right, right. Uh, it, it's very interesting that you bring up these points because uh, as we delve more into this and as we did delve more into this, uh, i see a lot of that coming through in today's day and age Mm -hmm. a lot of people there still are a lot of people that do want to go along this path that do want to practice it that feel it is absolutely right society shuns them because you know of the social pressure yeah but behind closed doors and everything they still do advocate it quite a bit um
0: yeah. Yeah. And I definitely want to make sure that I, I don't want to come up as saying that every person who's disenfranchised is, is, you know, automatically a sheep for some cult follower to devour. But, but I don't mean that. But I think that it is definitely there. I think, you know, some people find, you know, they, they are devoted to yoga and, you know, they, they want to do, you know, yoga that really benefits them and is not about this other person. And obviously there are a lot, of, there are, are a lot more practitioners that are um, along that vein of things and people who are just looking for this one person to solve their problems. Um, so that is important to mention because I do not want to make it seem like, uh, young yoga practitioners are all just these really gullible people because that's far from true. I mean, I think yoga, right. yoga itself is a very internal practice. It really makes you reflect on yourself and on the nature of, of humanity of the human condition, I think. So I think it really is an intellectual practice and it really does change you, um, and again, I'm not someone who practices yoga very often, because I'm kind of one of those people that is kind of a perfectionist. And so when if I'm ever in a yoga <laughs> class, I'm always looking to see what other people are doing to be like, Oh, my gosh, like, is my foot in the right place, you know, but yeah, we did do a yoga session, actually. Um, I don't remember exactly when, but in the semester, earlier in the semester, we did yoga, semester, yoga, yes. and it was really sad, because I was doing that for so long, and then, like, the last 10 minutes of it, I finally was, like, you know what, I'm just gonna do me, and I had, that was, like, the best 10 minutes of the session, because I yeah. finally decided to let go of those preconceptions of trying to be, you know, do the perfect asanas, and I finally enjoyed myself, so I think if I tried it again, um, you know, without, without, you know, having all those perfectionist um, urges in my mind, I think, it would be a lot more of a transformative experience, but even that ten minutes told me that I can benefit from yoga. It's just that I just have to have the right mindset. I have to come into it with the right mindset, and I think that's for a lot of people. And you know, for again, for the these these girls that have, you know that Bhagavan has, I think they came into yoga, and again, like they didn't really know, they weren't com- They might not have been comfortable with it yet, and so. I think, you know, I think that's where you can go wrong is when you come into it with this mindset that, you know, is not healthy, uh, especially for you. Um, So I think that's my take on it.
1: I think that's beautifully said, especially the part about the last 10 minutes which you did practice, because I used to myself keep looking around. I'm putting my T-shirt down, making sure nothing is falling off (laughs) and I need to be perfect. No one's looking at me like, what am I doing? Um, But I think those last 10 minutes were so uh, rightly said, if I may say so, it might feel a bit liberating to kind of feel your own self over there. Um, I I personally felt that myself, not at that particular yoga class, because that class I was myself looking around and trying to figure myself out Mm -hmm. and um, do stuff there. But then uh, (laughs) a week later, I joined with two other friends uh, flex yoga studio at wooster mm-hmm. where we used to go at like six o'clock and spend an hour over there and that over there was where i kind of discovered myself it kind of let me think about myself um i felt much more liberated much more at peace with myself mm-hmm. and um i think as you said yoga itself is a very intellectual practice <laughs>
0: yeah. um
1: which <clears throat> If if performed regularly or even if performed once or twice, uh, uh, y- you can feel the after effects and the positive vibrations, and it's up to you how you want to use that and go ahead. Um, while we do look at Bikram and um, Doc Anthe using it in a bit of a you know negative light, there are tons of others who use yoga or or. Um, Advertise it or or perform it for the better betterment of the society for in a positive light. Um, in fact, the Prime Minister of India uh, himself devotes a yoga day specifically where he practices with the rest of the country. And he, most of the um, influential people, as far as I've seen and studied, they wake up early by. 4 a.m. 5 a.m. Practice it for an hour, and that's how they get upon the day. Hmm. They say it's the most liberating, most intellectual uh, time of the day, um, which helps um, you know be the most creative later on, be the less stressed, and helps them face any problem that comes their way. So they use it in a very uh, positive manner. Yeah, which is very very interesting. Yeah. Um,
0: that sounds like a much healthier substitute than a uh, coffee <laughs> to get to start the day. yeah um yeah, i mean even even as far as as pranayama goes um even though I wasn't huge into yoga um until like you know this this class taught me more about it um there was a time in the beginning of the year, I believe it was junior year, um where mm-hmm. when the weather was warm, I would go out early in the morning, usually like six six thirty or seven because um, I was in Kenarden, which is. At the very uh, end of campus, it's kind of like the boondocks of campus because um, it's so far <laughs> out. But it's by this little nature preserve called Knights Hollow. And it's a really cool place because it's like a little like woodland area and there's a ravine. And so what I did is I took a, a sit-upon and I just went down to the ravine and there was like this big flat like cement slab in the ravine. And I just put my sit-upon down and I just meditate for like half an hour. And again, I mean, that's not yoga, but I was focusing uh, specifically on like the breath practice the breath control and that really mm-hmm. did help i mean that really uh helped you know help start my day um so i could definitely see how you know if i and i was just focusing on the breath so i can definitely see how doing actual like physical poses um could really can can really help you have a more positive outlook on your day
1: absolutely absolutely i couldn't agree more with you in fact it's these smallest steps like these, just concentrating on your breaths or or just closing your eyes and thinking about nothing but empty space and trying to liberate yourself, trying to feel calm, all of these, uh, if I might go far and say uh, uh, is a part of yoga is is, is this even these smallest steps they play a big, big role in the betterment of each and every one of our lives, yeah, so uh, i I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think, I think that about sums up our, our podcast uh, for today. So, so thank you, Sadat, for being my co-host. It's been an honor talking with you.
1: Thank you so much, Sierra. It myself has been an honor talking with you as well. I really, really enjoyed it. I felt you touched upon some really important key points. Thank you. And there was so much to learn, so much to reflect upon at the end of the class. And I don't think I would have found a better partner to do yeah. that with than you.
0: Thank you. I feel much the same way. All right. So thank, thank you. So you thank you to everyone for listening in. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> or take <yeah>. care. <laughs>
1: All right. Yeah. Can. When we see you next. Yeah. Take care.
0: All right. Bye.
1: All right. Bye.